Pod here. Today I'm joined by Peter Webb. Peter is an organizational psychologist and the author of upcoming book, System 3 Thinking, How to Choose Wisely. I've known Peter for many years and he's regarded as an expert in one topic specifically, and that is wisdom and decision-making in the context of wisdom. So I was looking forward to seeing and chatting with Peter and certainly was not disappointed. In this conversation, we talk about his own background with a really interesting story of how he found himself stuck on a bridge as it was hanging over a torrid river at the age of 14 when he was in Papua New Guinea. And that taught him the valuable lesson of making small movements when you don't quite know the end outcome that you're heading towards. We talk about system three thinking and the difference between that and Daniel Kahneman's research into fast and slow thinking and the implications for leadership. We talk about six dimensions of wisdom and system thinking that leaders can cultivate that allow them to find and source and look for information during times of complete complexity with no other avenues open to them. We talk about simulations, scenario plannings. We talk about David Brooks, the New York columnist. We talk about self-assessments and we talk about post-COVID and what we can do to find a little island of sanity for ourselves. This is a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. We shall never surrender. The life experience is quite different to experiential learning or system one thinking, which is to operate from a gut feeling from your own experience. Life experience is drawing the lessons from lived experience. There are many people who've lived a long time, but they don't necessarily derive lessons from that life. They keep doing the same things over and over again, which is not necessarily a conditional element of, uh, of wisdom. So life experience is how do you derive lessons from your life experience and the life experience of others. Welcome to The Leadership Diet. I interview leaders and experts about ways to optimize leadership. What are useful habits and thinking patterns? What are the secrets to high-performing teams? And how do they continue to nurture their effectiveness day after day? In other words, what is their leadership diet? Welcome, Peter, to the latest episode of The Leadership Diet. Great to see you. Great to see you too, Patrick. Joining us from Melbourne today. Peter, I know you for someone to be, you've written a lot, you've spoken a lot, you've researched a lot on this whole topic of wisdom, and you have an upcoming book, System 3 Thinking, How to Choose Wisely, due for release in September later this year. So I want to do a deep dive later on into both those topics, the idea of decision-making and the idea of wisdom and whatever that is. Let's do a conversation on that. But maybe let's start at the beginning. I know that in your early childhood, you spent a fair bit of time in Papua New Guinea, and that would, that would have shaped you in, in many ways. Tell us more about that. Well, Patrick, it certainly did because I, that's where I got the idea of, uh, of making decisions. It's a bit like crossing bridges uh, because at the tender age of 14, I was uh, spending time with uh, my school friend and his parents in the eastern highlands of Papua New Guinea, and I joined them for a uh, patrol, a routine department of agriculture, stock and fisheries patrol, seven days hiking through the uh, the jungles of eastern Papua New Guinea, villages and inspecting facilities, etc. On one morning, we came to a crossing. We had to cross this uh, river to get to the other side, and there was no way either downstream or upstream that you could get across the river apart from this one swing bridge. And to use the word swing bridge is probably being a bit more uh, descriptive than it really was. It was more or less loose uh, bits of uh, vine and logs roped together. Sounds like an Indiana Jones type movie. It, it sort of felt like that. But the, the river wasn't so much a river as a horizontal waterfall. It was these seething and boiling, this uh, 
Brown River roaring past. Uh, in fact, it was quite deafening. Uh, and as I was about to take my turn to cross the bridge, I heard one of the local bearers say that a, a, a bull had been lost in the river and they found pieces of it several kilometres downstream. So falling into this river was not an option. And when I got about halfway across uh, this bridge, because you're looking down the movement of the river underneath, you start to lean in the uh, upward direction. So I actually slipped and fell and landed, uh, fortunately, uh, straddling this bridge uh, as it bounced around trying to uh, throw me off. And I was stuck. I was stuck in the middle of this bridge, in the middle of the jungle, in a place where no one could possibly rescue you. My friend's father had crossed already and they were waiting for me. They saw what happened. His father tried to encourage me to cross the bridge and said, come on, you can do it. Just, just, uh, just move in my direction. Look at me. But I was terrified. I was absolutely stuck. I couldn't go back and I couldn't go forward. Gradually, inch by inch, I sort of uh, crawled myself uh, across the bridge, you know, holding desperately to these uh, logs as they shifted under my weight until finally I got to the other side. But that taught me something about uh, crossings. And that figures prominently in decision-making. Certainly the senior leaders that I've worked with, they often find themselves in the middle of a bridge like this where they really can't go back and they can't go forward. And uh, the option of falling into the river is not there either. So how do you make choices in such a situation? That began my coaching career, really, at the age of 14, but it began my interest in decision-making right there in that jungle. Wow. Well, I'm glad you're alive. You managed to, even if it was inch by inch, cross that bridge, because I certainly would imagine it would be quite terrifying for you. And as you said, uh, decision-making often requires us to move along a, a bridge with, with no clear outcomes. And in the last 18 months, there's been many cases where there wasn't even a bridge that people had to transverse over, over towards. That led you into a, a psychology background and led you into major kind of consulting. So to tell us a little bit about the transition you've made. So I've um, had a career in three parts. Uh, initially, I uh, did an economics degree, and then I went on to do an honours degree in organisational psychology, which um, led me into being an organisational psychologist in the mining and resource industry for a little while. And uh, then I actually became a full-time actor, uh, a travelling actor, as it turned out, in Queensland. I did not know that. I learned a lot of things about uh, what it takes to put up the set and take down the set, what it takes to perform, and how people actually perceive a performance. Then I eventually came back into corporate life uh, in the electricity industry in, uh, uh, in Queensland and uh, worked for a time. But I'd already uh, developed an interest in natural medicine as we were touring around Queensland. And so I went into a, another career as a naturopathic physician. I trained for many years and then had my own practices and so I developed uh, quite an understanding of how to treat and heal people using mind-body medicine effectively. Uh, and that got me really interested in systems thinking because some 20 years later, when I exited the naturopathic uh, medicine field and found myself back in corporate work again, I had a sort of a biological mindset uh, and I could see systems in organizations and, and systems in how people were getting things done very, very clearly. It all uh, it made a lot of sense to me. So when I transitioned back into corporate uh, again, uh, almost 20 years ago now, that's how I developed my consulting career. That's extraordinary. I, I love how you know, the history people have always played or can often play out in their modern career if they let it play out. So I would imagine your, your theatrical background allows you to play with roles and, and, and look at the underlying narrative people are holding and that might be surfacing in, in their current role, et cetera. 
There is that. I can also see theatrics when it comes to politics and organizations. So it's helping <laughs> I to uh, see right through to the play. To manage that as well. <laughs> well, and I, know, I know you to do some great consulting. You also work alongside Deloitte um, out, out of Victoria. You mentioned the word systems and your, as I say, your upcoming book, System 3, Thinking, How to Choose Wisely. Let's talk about that. So I was, I was intrigued by the title because I think most people listening to this podcast will be aware of Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. And he talks about two systems. Maybe let's start there. Let's start with the two systems and then, and then the research you did has led to a, a third one. Mm, absolutely. So, uh, yes, as you mentioned, uh, Daniel Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize and is the, uh, the founder of behavioral economics, actually, is well regarded for that. The idea of system one and system two thinking uh, was certainly in place before Kahneman. So it's been in the psychological literature for a long time. And I worked with a colleague, uh, Dr. Barry Partridge, about 10 years ago now. We um, actually won funding through the New South Wales Department of Innovation and Technology to develop a measure of decision making. And we did that through the University of Wollongong. It took us about four or five years to uh, to get a measure of system uh, thinking, as we explored, we noticed that there was actually a third system of thinking that was quite different to system one and two. We could prove that psychometrically. We could say that that's this system three thinking that we identified uh, psychometrically was distinct from system one and two. So before we went to Daniel Kahneman and uh, asked him to give back his Nobel Prize, we thought we'd better make sure that, that there are in fact three systems of thinking. So we spent quite a bit of time doing the psychometrics behind this. And, and it, held, it held firm. There were definitely three ways of thinking. And the three ways of thinking are that mostly, probably 95% of the time, using system one, which is intuitive, experiential. Uh, it's what your gut tells you, but it's what your experience tells you too. You just know that uh, it feels right. Uh, and so you go ahead and make that decision. System two is more deliberative more calculational, more rational. That's when you have to sort of step back and look at the uh, spreadsheet or do some thinking, do some analysis uh, before you can make up your mind. System three is there in all of us, but it's used uh, relatively rarely because it's where you run out of system one and system two, where you have a situation that's outside of your experience. You've never experienced this before and where you can't analyze your way out of it. It's, uh, there's no spreadsheet, there's no data, and you're really stuck. It might be more or less a, a moral dilemma that you're stuck with. You're looking for the least worst option. But either way, you've, you've run out of road. There's nothing that you can rely on. And you're looking, you're grasping at straws uh, as to how you're going to make this decision. And that's where System 3 kicks in. And what does that rely on then in order for the person to be able to access some degree of information to allow them to help make that decision? Well, normally we try to squeeze everything through system one or system two. So if we're presented with a dilemma, then we'll try to rationalize it or calculate it or try to get data. If that data is uh, not available, we'll try to appeal to our experience or draw down on others' experience. And if that's not available, then you know we're, we're left with, with nowhere to go. And what I noticed in the research that we did is that there are other ways of thinking about problems and solving problems. And there are ways of thinking outside of experience and ways of thinking outside of analysis. And so I began to explore what was this system three? How, how does it operate differently uh, to system one and two? And when do you draw on it? When can you deliberately actually say, well, I'm going to use system three to think about this problem? So for the last um, three years that I was in Asia doing consulting and running executive education programs, I continued to develop this idea around what was system three and arrived at six dimensions of system three that were uh, psychometrically 
measurable mm. and strangely enough that uh, were supported by neurobiology. So there's been some work done on the neurological substrates of uh, decision-making and it turned out that uh, System 3 had a location in the brain, which I wasn't expecting, but it, uh, it turned out to be uh, quite useful to reinforce that there was another way of thinking. Okay. Let's do a dive into those, the six dimensions of System 3 thinking. Can you walk us through those and how they interact together to allow that System 3 access to happen? Yeah, exactly. So, so here are the six dimensions. The first one is focus, which is being able to pay attention to the problem, pay attention to the circumstances, pay attention with an awareness of what's going on around you at the same time. So focus is often missed. We don't train for focus, generally speaking. But uh, you'll notice that people who do make extraordinarily difficult or complex decisions have remarkable focus. They can stand in the eye of the storm and perceive what is absolutely essential in the decision-making and actually stare at that you know, quite calmly. So having focus is absolutely vital for System 3 thinking. Do you think, do you think that the practice of mindfulness helps in increasing one's ability to stay focused? It does, Patrick. That's something I've discovered because all of these dimensions have a system of practice, how you can actually enhance and develop these. So there is a system of training that sits behind this. Mindfulness is, is certainly a system of training that helps to develop focus and is very important. Many of the senior leaders I've spoken to already have a well-established habit of um, a mindfulness or meditation. They just don't tell anyone about it, but they're very focused. Uh, becomes very important. I've noticed in the last, I don't know, it's just two or three years, whether the, the word mindfulness has now become mainstream and therefore people are referring to that, which is a different word than meditation, of course. The notion of, of, um, of attention focusing as a practice is, is linked with mindfulness. But the amount of leaders I've, I've spoken to who, who have a daily practice of mindfulness, and indeed on this podcast have talked about that, one leader a few weeks ago talked about the benefit he was getting from mindfulness was his ability to stay present when the whole world was trying to distract him, which I think Correct. is what you're talking about in terms of focus. Mm. I'd certainly support that because this is one of the dimensions of system three thinking. So that certainly helps leaders to focus on what's really important at the time they're facing disruption or a dilemma or uh, something that they're doubting themselves about. The second dimension of system three thinking is life experience. Well, that would make sense really because you can have a lot of experience and you can also draw down on the life experience, the lived experience of others, other leaders and other people. We gain life experience because we're exposed to lots of narratives through uh, movies, TV, streaming content, games, social media platforms. We've got access to so much information about other people's lived experience, real and imaginary, to draw on. But life experience is quite different to experiential learning or system one thinking, which is to operate from a gut feeling from your own experience. Life experience is drawing the lessons from lived experience. There are many people who've lived a long time, but they don't necessarily derive lessons from that life. They keep doing the same things over and over again, which is not necessarily a conditional element of, uh, of wisdom. So life experience is how do you derive lessons from your life experience and the life experience of others. Number three, the third dimension of System 3 thinking is decisiveness. This might seem counterintuitive because it appears that System 3 thinking is a contemplative form of thinking. It's a, uh, it's a way of stepping back from the problem and actually considering it from different points of view. But decisiveness is making small decisions, decisions that keep moving you in the direction of some solution, that it's an experimental process. You're actually making lots of little decisions that you hope will yield more information that will enable you to make a, a clearer decision. So decisiveness actually is an element. You can't sit on the fence and contemplate for too long. You do have to make decisions. 
even if it means making lots of quick decisions. Well, I, th- I think what your distinction here is the decisiveness has an application of let's move this forward in order to get more information because not moving forward means we're, we're just stalemate. Correct. And you'll hear lots of entrepreneurs talk about this too, you know, how to fail forward. You, know, you, you want to fail forward, fail quickly and fail frugally. And that's the element of decisiveness in System 3 thinking is continue to make decisions, don't just sit on the fence. The fourth dimension of System 3 thinking that I discovered is compassion. How to make a decision with compassion is a very important element of System 3 thinking. For example, compassion is a thoughtful response to an injustice. Compassion is strongly emotional. And when you have strong emotions around compassion, you'll feel called to respond to those emotions to do something about it, which is what compassion is. Uh, We do hear a lot about compassion, but it it sits to one side of real business decision-making. It's somehow thought to be a nice to have, but not not a necessary to have. But until and unless we bring compassion into our decision-making, then we will continue to suffer the sorts of problems that we're seeing that are affecting the planet, much less the sorts of societies that we live in. Compassion, I believe, has to be front and centre in decision-making. It can't be left behind. And that's a critical dimension of System 3 thinking. So I would imagine in this context, compassion really also talks to the community that we are in or a subset of and how do how do I as a leader think at that level as opposed to just at my functional level of leadership or my organizational level of leadership. I mean, I'm thinking beyond our current role or our current organization. Exactly. I had a um, coaching client who was the uh, global CEO for uh, Division of Mining and Metals for a a global investment bank. He was based in Sydney, but the head office was in Amsterdam. So he had to get across 11 different time zones to manage the business. Very difficult to do when you're in the wrong part of the planet for uh, for time zone management. But, But his mission actually was to see what he could do for mining communities. Those mines are in places like Kazakhstan or Cambodia. How could the revenue from those mines actually benefit those communities? So he had a very deep sense of compassion, which came from his upbringing in South Africa. But he was trying to bend the global bank to bring compassion into the way in which they funded various mining operations so that uh, there was much more flowing to the community than had hitherto been the case. He was more or less successful at doing that. Eventually, he uh, had to move to Amsterdam in order to manage this global business. But he was absolutely dedicated, compassionate, actually about making sure that mining ventures benefited the communities that they sat within. And it wasn't just a case of taking royalties and, uh, and leaving behind a big hole in the ground. Sounds like a lovely symbiotic relationship between his personal mission and the organization's mission from a commercial perspective. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So that's a demonstration of system three thinking of the uh, dimension of uh, compassion. And then next, I noticed you have emotional regulation as the next one, which I think is a lovely, not contrast per se, but a partner with compassion. Yes, it is indeed a partner with compassion, but it's about being able to, it's not about shutting down emotions, it's being able to regulate your emotions. So you can actually feel anger, you can feel frustration, or you can feel sadness, you can have these emotions coming up, but being able to regulate them, to have enough depth of uh, understanding of your emotions, and the emotions of others, uh, to be able to utilize those emotions fully, to utilize the full palette of emotions available to you and to regulate them. So, uh, you know, the senior leaders who are used to pounding on the desk and getting their way are not demonstrating emotional regulation. And this is a, a, a critical element of uh, System 3 thinking. In fact, in the measure of System 3 thinking that I've developed called the T3 profile, this is the area where most leaders score very poorly. And so we need to talk about how to develop emotional regulation. And Patrick, the sixth and final dimension of System 3 thinking is tolerance for divergent values. 
What's a tolerance of other people's values? So these are questions connected with accepting others' morals and values, the insight into the reasons for your actions and the openness to diverse viewpoints. So we keep hearing about diversity in the workplace, how diversity is so important. You can identify with your own beliefs and your own value system, but you're actually open and curious to the fact that other people think differently to you and have vastly different value systems to you. And importantly, you can contend with that. You can sit with that. So I saw a lot of this in Asia where there are quite fixed values and moral systems. I was once presenting a program in Khartoum in Sudan to the um, Central Bank of Sudan. And these directors that I was talking to, I was trying to say how wisdom and these six elements of thinking are so important to help them to make difficult decisions for their bank and for the country. And they sort of sat back and said, well, look, we, we have a religious system that guides us in relation to making wise decisions. We simply have to you know, go to the book and that will tell us the decision to make. And I was so frustrated with that view, with that fixed view that I said to them, uh, look, um, I know that uh, that's what you think, but you're living in denial. And, and, and you can't live in denial because there are other ways of thinking about these problems. And by the way, denial is not a river in Egypt. <laughs> it's a joke I'd often used in presenting programs in Australia, but I suddenly realized that just outside country. the window was actually the Blue Nile, <laughs> where it conjoined with the White Nile in cartoon. And uh, not only had I made a very important mistake of not recognizing their values, but actually Egypt is the natural enemy of Sudan and they don't like the Egyptians very much. And to actually draw attention to their uh, recalcitrance as something to do with the Nile, therefore something to do with Egypt, uh, was not was not a very wise move on my part. So you recognize that in that moment you had not accessed system three thinking on any level. <laughs> it, it, absolutely. I had not accessed system three thinking, the very thing that I was teaching. <laughs> oh, don't you love when that happens to all of us? It, it always does. <laughs> We hope you're enjoying this episode of The Leadership Diet. Feel free to hit the subscribe button on whatever podcast player you are listening to this on. Reviews on iTunes and Spotify are greatly appreciated. I'll tell you what really struck me when I first read your six dimensions was the word, it wasn't tolerance for divergent views, it was tolerance for divergent values, yes. which is a much deeper need of understanding of where other people are coming from, which requires listening, compassion, experience, etc., to be able to recognize different set of values. Yes. Yes, it is. And we have such certainty in the world today. You know, people are very certain about what's happening. They're very certain about their views. They're very certain about their values and they, they hold to that. There's a certain element of uh, comfort in that. You know, if you're certain about your values, then everybody else is wrong because you have the right answer. It's very comforting. Unfortunately, it's not the case. You know, people live different values in different lives. And the more you can open up to that and really look into and be curious about others' values, then the more of a global citizen you can be. You mentioned earlier on that mindfulness is one of the practices that allows a leader to, in this case, the word focus was one of the dimensions. What other practices do you recommend or do you work with to allow leaders to build or to increase their ability in those dimensions? Actually, there's quite a few. I talk about these in the book and I give uh, examples of how to actually help to develop these elements of system three thinking. So you mentioned mindfulness as being a practice to help with focus, but another practice is to remind yourself to hit the pause button before you make a big decision. That's a, an important element of, uh, of helping with your focus. I remember in the 1960s watching the Dick Tracy show on black and white TV cartoon series in which uh, the policeman Dick Tracy fought crime every week, but he'd contact his subordinates with a two-way wrist watch radio, which presaged the iWatch by at least five decades. But when he'd press the uh, wrist watch radio, he'd say, hold everything, and the action would obediently screech to a halt and wait 
what he called headquarters for further instruction. So people would stop in midair, everything, the action would stop. And then as soon as he said over and out, then the action would continue. So uh, hitting the pause button like Dick Tracy in that cartoon series is, is a useful technique to develop. I've seen one or two leaders who I know are renowned for being extraordinary, great, not, not necessarily negotiators, but recognizing when to negotiate well and when just to pull and when not to negotiate. And the word they use is optionality. Like, how do I keep as much optionality available? But I think what they actually do is, is pause before making fast decisions in order to stay alert to other options that might emerge or other pieces of information that might be needed. And I remember one of them in particular, I asked him, how come you always seem to delay decision-making? He says, I will only make a decision this big when I ultimately have to. Otherwise, I'll just keep waiting until we have better information or, or we need to make it. So I think yes. that, that leans into what you're talking about, I think. It does. And I think most leaders will be juggling between system one and system two thinking to solve problems. So system one thinking is that your experience tells you to step back and a better solution will emerge. System two thinking says, well, when evidence comes forward, I can analyze that evidence. I can analyze that data and then that will help me make a decision. But I think you can deliberately step into system three thinking as well. I think that gives greater flexibility in terms of uh, deriving solutions to certainly to dilemmas that might be occurring in business and in life. The leaders that you've helped develop this uh, strength or develop a strength in this area, what have you seen as the implication for them as, as to how they lead after they've developed this or any of those dimensions into, into a stronger strength of theirs? It's interesting because I've, I've found them become softer. And by softer, I mean they look at the world with, with softer eyes, not with hardened eyes. They tend to see multiple options rather than just a black and white. It's either A or B. They do tend to step back from the situation and sometimes they will wait for something to emerge and sometimes they'll actually step in and make quite quick decisions and then see what the result is. But there's a sense of sitting above the problem. There's a sense in which they're almost observing themselves go through the problem resolution phase, um, that's a particular kind of insight, which I've noticed in leaders who've developed these techniques and apply these techniques more meaningfully. With a leader last week who I think may fall into this category you're talking about, and this person is renowned for being really good at orchestrating a industry-wide conversation as opposed to just an organizational level conversation. And in describing a particular situation, he said to me, I find myself noticing a topic coming to me in the meeting. And I just try to imagine myself sitting above my own body just to try and preempt how I might address that topic that's only a second away. And then who in the room needs to be impacted in different ways. And mm. I found it a, a really clever description of that notion of being able to rise above the challenge and manage them themselves very, very quickly, but very proactively. And I asked him, you know, what does that mean in terms of the way you influence the conversation? He said, well, it really depends on A, the topic. I'm really clear on what's emerging in the conversation that was different to what we thought, but also the people around the conversation, how might they react to my next utterance? So therefore, I'm very choicefully picking my language in split seconds. But it was the notion of rising above themselves and watching themselves in the conversation that really struck me as being, this is someone who's very experienced and who has taken a lot of time to reflect upon their own impact in those kind of meetings. Mm, indeed. There's some research behind this uh, because the basis for this work and for the book is the uh, psychology of wisdom. There's uh, a fellow by the name of Igor Grossman, who's the Associate Professor of Psychology and Director of the Wisdom Research Lab at the University of Waterloo, Ontario. He calls the technique ego decentering. 
which is getting your ego out of the situation and seeing the situation as if you're a fly on the walls. That's exactly what you're talking about, Padre, uh, where you can look down and see yourself in the situation, struggling with the decision. And then what would you see from an outside perspective if your ego was not involved? So that's a, that's a, a practice that you develop as a way of developing systems rethinking. We'll find a link to that uh, and put that into the show notes for anyone who's interested in, in following up what you've just said on ego decentering. We'll, we'll find a link to that. Peter, I want to move to wisdom because I said this is what you and I first met is when I heard you doing some talks uh, on this topic over the last number of years. It's an area that you're known for being you know, very wise about or at least very knowledgeable about. I'm not sure which one yet, but let's start with wisdom. Like, well, first of all, what is it? Uh, wisdom has been around as a, as a form of expression, of course, for a long time since the Greeks, you know, Aristotle defined the different ways of knowing, Plato, etc. So we derive our understanding of what wisdom is from those uh, early philosophers. Right through to the present time when you've had latter-day philosophers talk about wisdom and they see wisdom as knowing what is the right thing to do in the right situation for the right people. You know, it really is as simple as that. And that's not always very easy to do. It's quite tricky, actually, because what is the right thing to do and how will it benefit the most number of people? And when is the right time to actually exercise that decision? Yeah, so not an easy thing to do. Who, who decides what's right? But fundamentally, that's what wisdom is, is trying to, trying to get all those things together. And when I began my research on wisdom back in um, 2005, actually, when I presented a paper to the first uh, University of Sydney Evidence-Based Coaching Conference, I had started to look into this literature and it occurred to me that the fundamental proposition around where is wisdom and how do you exercise wisdom is at the point of decision. It's at that moment that you realize, is this going to be a wise decision or not? And sometimes you don't know, actually. What seems to be roundly criticized as the most foolish decision you could possibly make might turn out in time to have been a very wise decision. Or what you think is a wise decision to make at this point in time, given all the available evidence, could turn out to be the most foolish thing you could possibly have thought of doing. So wisdom is very time-based, short-term and long-term, but it also comes down to the point of decision. That's where wisdom actually applies. So I'm, I'm very keen to explore the application of wisdom in decision-making and then the ripple effect that such decisions might have on companies, on communities, on societies, on countries, and indeed on our global health. I'm, uh, you mentioned modern-day philosophers, and I know you and I both read uh, David Brooks, who's a columnist in New York Times, and he's written uh, some lovely books, one on, on the Second Mountain recently, on, on, on the chains of life, etc. But uh, I came across an article he wrote in April where he was referring to Maurice Schwartz, who became the character in the book. He had a lovely notion. He says, you know, wisdom, people often talk about wisdom being you know, the old man on the hill and, and, and you try to access them. He said, but actually his experience has been wisdom is with people that's the way they receive others as in the way they listen to others. And I'm just wondering that moment of decision that you're talking about, to what degree is the listening for others or listening for the nobility in the other's search part of the way the person who's deemed to be wise reacts to that conversation? Exactly. Well, it's a bit of a tautology because people who we might regard as wise never see themselves as wise. Uh, they always see themselves in a perpetual state of ignorance because they're completely open to things being not what they expect. They're open to things happening that they didn't anticipate and they can actually step back and see the impact of uh, various actions. People who tell us that they're wise often turn out to be very foolish. So it's very difficult to know who is wise and who isn't because people who 
we would regard as wise will often uh, not see themselves that way. I would reference the consultant uh, Margaret Wheatley, who many of your listeners would know of, who wrote a book about um, chaos and leadership back in the 1990s. In 2017, she wrote a book called Who Do We Choose to Be? Facing Reality, Claiming Leadership, Restoring Sanity. And, and her point was that we can no longer solve the global problems of this time at large-scale levels. We've lost the opportunity to really move the levers to any great degree. Poverty, economics, climate change, violence, humanization, these sorts of things are out of our hands now. So we need to be willing to use whatever power we have to create islands of sanity that evoke and rely on our best human qualities to create, produce and persevere. What does your island of sanity look like? I think is the question that she asks. Is it your family? Is it your community? Is it a cluster of like-minded individuals? But I think this goes to the heart of what wisdom is in this stage of the 21st century, which is how do we foster the best of humanity? How do we create islands of sanity that preserve those seeds so that they will germinate in the future? That takes a very deliberate, long-term view that goes beyond your own lifespan and perhaps considers subsequent lifespans. Starts to take into account uh, new communities emerging on other planets, for example. Right. What will that be like? So, wisdom actually looks at things uh, across a much broader scale. You know, farmers know about this. You plant a, a seed now, you may not be around to harvest the crop. There is an element of this in wisdom of being able to cultivate wise thinking amongst those around you and to be able to move in the direction of what is best for humanity. Which by nature has to, has to have a long-term view. There's no short-term gain there. Yes. Yeah. I, I remember listening to Margaret Wheatley and uh, maybe at the end of 19 or early 2020, she certainly doesn't have a positive hope for the planet at, at a big, big level, but she certainly kept talking about you know, the, the islands and how do you create the islands. And I've, I've forgotten that phrase, island of sanity. It's a beautiful phrase to latch onto, to find your own wisdom for yourself. What is my island of sanity for me? I'm, I'm interested in, uh, I was going to say our, our post-COVID world, but as I speak to you, Melbourne has just gone into its fourth lockdown. So I'm not so sure we're, we're post-COVID yet, still in it. And, no, and we're not really emerging as fast as we thought we would. But having said all that, I am interested in what's your sense for leaders emerging out of the last two years of this degree of chaos that we've all been mm. in? And what kind of learning emerges from system three thinking or from wisdom that we can take into and help leaders become more effective as they navigate a more ambiguous world? And I'm also leaning into, I know you've got a background in simulations and scenario planning as a way to help leaders do just that. So any thoughts on the, the post-COVID world that we will emerge from hopefully very soon, and then therefore how we help mm. leaders navigate that? Mm. Mm. Uh, well, of course, it's a bit of a straw man to be talking about uh, you know post-COVID world and how we're going to emerge and uh, what does that look like? Everything's new, everything's uncertain. The world has always been thus. Everything has always been uncertain. There have been plagues and uh, rumours of plagues and wars and rumours of wars through time immemorial. So a moment in history is, um, is in some respects a little different to other moments in history. So leaders need to equip themselves with the ability to think in times of doubt and dilemma and disruption. So it's not uh, as if these times are out of the ordinary, actually. Just the first thing to do is to stop thinking that it'll all be well when COVID goes away. Basically, it won't. And the economic fallout and the geopolitical fallout will be ways in which forward history will be written, of course. But I would suggest that um, that you can actually appropriate these six dimensions. So, for example, focus. 
notice what's going on in the world around you and pay attention, no matter how grim, distasteful, or unfair it looks. Don't turn away, but don't get too drawn in. Be a detached observer. You know, really notice what's happening. In terms of life experience, draw on the lessons from your own life and the experiences of others to see events and issues in the context of human development over a longer term than what the news cycle might be giving you. Um, I listened to a wonderful interview this morning uh, with the uh, uh, philosopher uh, Noam Chomsky, who's well known for his radical views, uh, rightly or wrongly, but he has such a long perspective. He can talk about what happened in the 1960s and how that's evolved to what's happening in various political movements today. You know, that perspective is quite a, a rare and unique perspective. You don't have to be you know, in your 80s to be able to derive that perspective. You can borrow it from others, but realize that History is written over a long period of time, not just the current news circle. Decisiveness, if you can make a positive difference in another's life or in a community, then take action. Don't delay. Take that decision now. Decide on the issue and take a stand. Be known for your position becomes important. Don't be wishy-washy. Compassion, actually use your feelings of frustration or anger or sadness and empathy to reach out and help those in need with whatever resources you have available at the time. So don't be backwards and coming forwards. Really step forward and help when you can help. And emotion regulation, always strive for balance in your emotional experience. Identify your feelings. Uh, be honest about owning them. Don't be overwhelmed or confused. Notice your emotional state as a byproduct of the issues that you're seeing in the world. But do try to remain detached. Finally, the sixth dimension, tolerance for divergent values, try to maintain a state of equanimity, which means calmness and composure, especially in a difficult situation. Uh, have a level of curiosity about the issues and circumstances in the world. Try to imagine what other people might be feeling, even if their values and beliefs are diametrically opposed to yours. So I would suggest the six dimensions of system three thinking amenable to leaders today in this current epoch in history that we find ourselves in, faced with doubt and dilemma and disruption. And it would be helpful for leaders to practice these six dimensions and get good at applying system three thinking. And as you said, this is not just a moment of time. It is a moment of time, but there's many, many moments in our history that are similar in the sense of, of chaotic, then leading to something new. So the, these practices are, are timeless in that regard, in the sense that it allows you to access insight, not just for now, but for many times in the future when something similar or maybe on a less level of chaos might would emerge for you. And so therefore, it's useful practice. I know you've developed, um, I, th I think it's a self-assessment process to allow people to understand their own ability with, with Systems 3. It's called the T3 Profile. Tell us more about that. And, and uh, is, is that accessible? Is, is that through your book? How does someone learn more about that? Yes, it's accessible. Uh, uh, the website, you can go to the website and take the T3 Profile to find out how well you're utilizing System 3 thinking. And then the opportunity exists to look at those six dimensions and say, well, two or three of them I seem to be doing okay, but here are a couple where I don't seem to be doing okay uh, or not very well. So what do I need to, to do? What do I need to practice to get good at using System 3 thinking? And that's the basis of the book is what do you actually do? At the moment, the T3 profile is available on a website in the UK and you need to actually get a login and a password just for European privacy requirements. But the profile is actually in the book. You can uh, take it as a paper and pencil test. You can score it yourself and you can see how that looks. Uh, it will soon be on a, an Australian website where you can actually go in and take it as well and just get the data. That is all available. It's a, a validated survey. I've done the psychometrics and it works. We started out with uh, some 75 items in the original questionnaire and over a couple of years, we've got it down to just 18 items. So you can do it quite quickly and it's quite a valid measure uh, of your system three thinking dimensions. 
I remember taking it myself uh, maybe a year or so ago when you and I were talking about this whole topic. And that's where my noticing of the, the sixth dimension of tolerance for divergent values really kicked in in terms of really recognizing what you're talking about is it's not just someone's opinion. It's actually really, really understanding the value set. So so certainly from my own perspective, it, it opened my eyes to a deeper level of understanding where other people are coming from is a very useful dimension to be building. And people around me can validate whether I have or haven't. But I know certainly taking that at the time was it was a very useful eye opener. We will put a link to all of this in our show notes and indeed um, the book that's coming out in September. But for anyone who is looking to bring a degree of wisdom to their daily life, particularly in a decision-making role, which is most of the people listening to this podcast, these are practices that are definitely worthwhile investigating and, and looking into. Peter, um, I want to bring this conversation to an end. I ask the same two questions of almost everybody I meet in any conversation I'm ever in, so I'm going to bring them to you if I could. What is your favorite song or your favorite band as a matter of interest? <laughs> it's very good. Um... Yeah, that's interesting. I have to think about that. During uh, our long lockdown in Melbourne, uh, we would listen to uh, Jimmy Barnes, who would uh, play songs every day just to, just to support us. And he had musicians around him. Of course, his whole family is musical. I think even his dog is musical. <laughs> uh, and uh, he would just play the most extraordinary songs. And it just kept us all afloat, I think. And he's taken it up again during this fourth lockdown. Uh, we, we like listening to Jimmy Barnes just to, to take heart from that. Well, I came to Australia 23 years ago, so therefore I didn't grow up in Jimmy Barnes' music, but I've come to appreciate him, particularly in the last couple of years. But my wife uh, became a big fan during during his Facebook daily concerts, the ones that you're referring to. So uh, he's touring, um, I think it's next month. And so we're going to see him in the State Theatre in Sydney, all, all going well on the, on the back of the Facebook free concerts he was doing every day. Fantastic. Yeah, that's absolutely great. Uh, well, I think one of my favorite songs is actually Simon and Garfunkel, Sounds of Silence. Mm-hmm. That, that dates me uh, because there's something um, about uh, acknowledging the space, the space between, this, it's a very mindful proposition, actually, that between stimulus and response, there's this space, there's the sound of silence. Um, so that still appeals to me even now. Very good. And my last question, Peter, and I appreciate you making time for us today. Speaking of stimulus and response, if you were able to reach back into and have a conversation with the 30-year-old version of yourself in order to share whatever degree of wisdom you have today, assuming that person would listen to you, of course, what, what, what might you share with him? Uh, just get on with it. Just do it. Don't be afraid of what other people think. Uh, I know that's a very common refrain, but um, most of what I know now, I probably knew then, right. um, but I just didn't put it into practice. Yeah. Brilliant. On that note, Peter, it's been a delight to have you here. I know we, we've tried for a while to have this conversation and between us, we finally got here. So I appreciate you being here. We will link everything into the show notes with all the references that you have talked to today. And I look forward to reading your book in September when it comes out. Wonderful. Thanks. Great opportunity to talk with you, Patrick. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Leadership Diet. If you enjoy that conversation, I've recorded my own reflections and a summary of that in the next episode. It's just a few minutes long and it's lined up straight away so you can download it after this. And I've designed it to spark your memory of the conversation. Occasionally I suggest some reflections to consider and I also hint at where you might want to go next if this subject particularly interested you. So to round off this conversation, just click on the next episode and enjoy a few minutes reflection time. After that, head over to leadershipdiet.com where you can subscribe to the podcast, to our blogs, retrieve show notes, including whatever resources, songs or band was mentioned by our guest. 
And finally, the best way you can support this podcast is by submitting a review on Apple, subscribing on whatever platform you listen to, and sharing this podcast with your colleagues and friends so they might gain any insights from our guests.